All right, so last week we focused on the context in terms of the book of Romans. We also talked about the text at length, and so what I want to do is review the text and deal with further doctrinal applications off of it. So rather than arguing for the interpretation of the text, which was the focus last week, I'm going to reread it, remind you of the interpretation, and start jumping into associated doctrines and going to other verses that relate to the subject at hand. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will receive judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So let me run through with you again the reminder. This is not a text demanding unlimited submission to anybody with a badge and a gun. This is a commandment to obey lawful orders from lawful magistrates. And so let's read how we should understand this text. I wrote that out for you last week. Let every soul be subordinate to the lawful authority that is in higher authority. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed under God as an ordinance under God's authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist the law order of God will receive judgment on themselves. For rulers, those who use lawful authority, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the lawful authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the lawful authority. For he, the lawful authority, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he, the lawful authority, does not bear the sword in vain. For the lawful authority is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, because the lawful authority executes lawful judgment in avenging wrongs as a service to God and to the governed, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. What thing? The avenging of wrongs in service. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So, we talked last time about how if you read through that, and instead of putting lawful authority in for all the times we're talking about the duty to obey, if you just put in literally anybody with a badge and a gun, or you put in the word Hitler, or Mao, or Stalin, it becomes a farce. It's... It's absurd. It's not what the text is saying. It makes the word of God contradict itself. So going from there, what we have to talk about now is the doctrines that are drawn out. So 
I didn't get to talk, I had this in my notes last time, but I didn't really go through it, so I want to go through this a little bit more. The law order that God has given, we can understand with the term theonomy. The word theonomy means God's law, theos and namos. Theos is God in Greek, namos is law in Greek. And so we have the law of God establishing order. Another way that's also equally likely to draw screams and horror when you use it is theocratic libertarianism both because people hate theocracy and liberty. So when you do that, the point is to try to make things clear and to get people to engage. More people have heard the label theonomy than they've heard theocratic libertarianism. And so if you find that somebody won't talk to you about the idea of theonomy, you might find that they're willing to talk to you about the term theocratic libertarianism. The basic point is this. All authority comes from God. No authority of one rational creature over another rational creature is to be assumed it has to be shown. So if anybody tries to order you around, the point is where do you get the authority? And so that's the libertarian element. You don't have authority over me unless you can prove it. The theocratic element is the authority comes from God. And so you point to scripture to show this is where the authority comes from. Now, the alternatives to this, right? people don't like this because they don't like the Bible and they don't like the God of the Bible. And they think that his Old Testament laws are unjust and the New Testament is insufficient for a state. And so, when you look at the Old Testament, that's the mean old God, New Testament, nice new God. It's the same God. It's one unified text. There's a change of administration of how we worship God and a change from the local Israel to the international church and all the nations being brought in. So what I have are the alternative false views. And if you come up with another view that's not included in this list, please let me know. I will look into it and tell you why it is wrong. Because the Bible is true and men are liars. So here are the, thought, the false alternatives. So this is uh, 2C, and you've got the Roman numerals there. The first is anarchism, the denial of a law order for the state. Anarchism asserts that there ought not to be a state. What's good for the state? To not exist. That's the good of the state. Right? That's the anarchist view. And so in the anarchist view, you either end up having to assert that men are good, or you have to assert that individuals can take vengeance into their own hands, and that's how you deal with vengeance. Or you're going to generally have something like insurance companies, like going out and avenging, and so you end up with a state that you pay a fee to. Oh, so there's a state. So these are the ways that, that gets dealt with. The most nonsensical forms of anarchism are typically collectivist. They'll say it'll be socialistic anarchism. So, so communism is supposed to ultimately evolve into anarchy where everybody owns everything and everybody cooperates about everything and everybody gives way to the neighbor to be able to enjoy everything perfectly. And so if you think that can happen with man's fallen condition and if you think that's the law order that God has given, you have not read the Bible seriously. So anarchism is a denial of the institution of the civil order by God which is first given in Genesis 9. Autonomy it's sort of the same, or you can try to say, well, man's allowed to invent his own laws. This typically comes from a twisting of Romans 13 and also a later text in, uh, in Peter that we'll, we'll analyze when we get there uh, about the idea that there are human creations uh, that need to be obeyed. 
and that gets translated as human ordinances and therefore human laws, and that's, that's the twisting route that you go down. So you have to obey any law that humans make up. Uh, that's that's a, autonomy. is based upon the word autos, which is self, and namos, law, so being a law to yourself. And you can do that individually or as a group. And so whoever gives you the law is the god of the system. So you can make yourself god and you make up your own law, or you can make the state god and let the state make up the laws. But in any case, there's idolatry. So autonomy is a twisting of the importance of conscience or of the choices of a group as a majority vote that results in anarchy. It's essentially lawlessness because what's legal today can be illegal tomorrow. And that's what we live in, right? I mean, the, the self-eating, self-destroying nature of the crazy left is that the things that used to be considered politically correct are today hate crimes. And when you committed them, even though everybody agreed that that was supposed to be the nice way of doing things, now it's the evil way of doing things, so repent, but the repentance is never going to be forgiven, so you just need to keep repenting forever, and then someday, hopefully, you will die. Right? That's the attitude that you see towards people who commit transgressions of sort of the new popular norm of critical theory. So we move into realpolitik, also known as might makes right, or as Mao so eloquently put it, power comes at the end of a gun. Right? That is the, the basic idea. Now, this it's applied. A lot of people who have a proper view of the state, then when they go into international politics, adopt this view. And when you do that, you are being incoherent. We need to realize that there's a law order from God that applies on an international level, a national level, a church and household level, an individual level, all authority comes from God, and that includes the waging of war. And so waging of war is about international law. Waging of war is about the law of God as it governs the nations, and the right of states to wage war, which we will discuss, is based upon the common law or the general equity of the law, the law that is given by God to the state. And so we wage war according to the law of God. So realpolitik is this view that goals and the accomplishment of those goals justifies the use of force. It is this view that if you win, you are right. So you think about this as the people who win the war are the ones who are now in power and we ought to submit to them. An unlawful occupier of your land is not someone that you have an obligation to submit to. If the Soviets had taken over some part of the land that you inhabited, in the 1970s, you would not have an obligation to obey them just because they took it over. And just because somebody takes over the government of the country that you live in doesn't mean you have an obligation to obey them. There is lawful means to obtain power, and there's lawful order while in office. It is possible for someone to unlawfully take power, to repent, and to then lawfully rule, and then by the acquiescence of those who are governed to be considered lawful from that point going forward. But, generally speaking, those who are lawfully put into power and lawfully rule, that is the set of persons that there's an obligation to submit to. So the next group, the next theory is called natural law. So Aristotle's famous for this one, he essentially says, man is a rational, political animal. And because man is a political animal, a rational animal, that 
what that means is by the very nature of humanness, there need to be states. States are partnerships. And he'll say, well, you have the individual. The individual can't survive by themselves. They need their parents. So the household is a government that's obvious. But a household can't really survive by itself. It takes a village. And so what you really need is you need a partnership of partnerships. And the state is the partnership that incorporates all of the partnerships. And we need to remember that the partnership is the thing that really has the ability to survive on its own. Are you starting to hear things that remind you of abortion? The partnership is the thing that has the ability to survive on its own. And so, when necessary, just as the body needs to clip off fingernails and cut hair, if the individual must be sacrificed for the good of the body, so be it. Right? That's, the, that's what natural law tends towards when you say a law that you're trying to derive the state out of human nature. The state is not established by the natural law. It's not a part of the original moral law. The moral law in the heart of man did not include the state because man was made unfallen. The state is made not in the time of man's innocency. The state is made after the fall, after the earth was filled with violence and God destroyed the human population with a flood. After that, the state was instituted and put in the context of preserving the church from being wiped out, to stop violence from filling the earth. So the goal is to fill the earth with the knowledge of God, and because of the fallenness of man, because of the fallenness of man, the state is necessary to, rather than having the earth filled with violence, instead have it filled with the knowledge of God. So that natural law view of the state trying to derive it out of human nature only by seeing the state as necessary to human nature can you make that something derived out of the nature of man and so a twisting of the fact that human nature is given to us and turning that set of indicative statements into imperatives you cannot derive an ought from an is. You cannot derive an ought from an is. Let me remind you of what that means. In any argument, you have premises. Premise one, premise two. The conclusion can only have contents that are in the premises. If I say A is B, all A is B, and I say all B is C, then I can conclude that all a is C. So that's a logical conclusion. I cannot conclude all A ought to be C because ought isn't in the premises. Only is is. Hopefully all those is is made that easy to follow. So natural law, when you try to, without propositions but through the observation of things, derive propositions and then seek to derive ought out of statements about what is, you fail. Now, the only way to actually make that work is there is a way to get an ought in there. And it's if you know what's good for a thing. So if you say A is good for B, then the is good is equivalent to ought. They ought to do this thing that's good for them. Okay, But you already have a definition of ought that means is good for and so we are either starting with the answer, we already know what's good for the state, and we're just 
putting that into our conclusion, right? So we're smuggling it in, or we're pretending like we derived it from the premises, um, or we're invalidly deriving an ought from an is. So natural law for the state, the family gets merged with the state, the individual is subsumed into the collective with no individual rights because the state becomes the thing that is necessary for the survival of the whole. Now, if you have the rest of God's law and you try to merge those together, you, you end up with essentially a multi-source theory. And the question becomes, does the law of God contradict what your natural source says or not? And so the state is not a part of the natural moral law. It is not a part of what is derived from the nature of man. It is not a part of the unfallen state of man. The state is instituted by God to deal with sinful, criminal behavior. So social contract. Social contract theory is a twisting of covenant into human contract. It's very believable. And in a certain sense, it's true. There is a social contract. The social contract is a covenant, though. All covenants are contracts, not all contracts are covenants. If the state is established merely by a contract, then it is unlawful. Let me explain. A contract is formed only by voluntary agreement between parties. Contracts are not automatically to be given in obligation to heirs. Heirs must accept the estate with its obligations. A covenant passes on to the next generation with or without the agreement of the next generation. So if I enter an employment contract that binds me and my successors forever, is it legitimate for every person ever born from me to be obligated by the same terms of the contract without their agreement? If there's a covenant from God where he says, this is the authority, this is what you are to do, and this is binding across time and generations, and you should teach this to your children, and your children will inherit this as your successors, that is different from a voluntary contract. So yes, it's a social contract, it's a social covenant. The social contract theory is essentially the assertion that the origin of the state comes out of agreement between parties. First of all, no state has ever been established by a unanimous agreement by all parties. You will search in vain the annals of history to find such an event. This fantasy land imagined origin of the state does not exist. If you find it, I will give you $500. Let me know. Now, if there is an example of it, does that justify all governments? And if there is an example, does that justify the continuation of the contract across all generations? So the social contract depends upon the assumption that the contract is accepted by being born or by not leaving as soon as you possibly could or some other set of you know, very onerous, you automatically accept this term's uh, requirements. A social contract 
is a twisting of covenant into human contract on successors with the assumption of a duty to uphold contracts. Where do you get that from if you don't get it from the law of God? Where do you get the assumption that contracts are a sacred thing and we should uphold our obligations to other people? You get it from the law of God. You have to have the law of God in order to make this work. Contracts can be opted out by refusal to accept an estate. Covenants cannot be opted out of. It requires unanimous consent. So, authority depends upon truth. Politics, politics is a subcategory of ethics. And so when we think about philosophy, we have to know how do we know truth? Okay, how do we know the nature of reality? How do we know what's good? So, the theory of what's good and what's evil in the Bible is we get laws from God, but we are going to misinterpret those laws if we don't keep the goal in mind. And so the very short, easy, small number of syllable label I've given to you is teleological divine command theory. Help me to come up with a shorter one. I'd be happy to use it. Teleological means it's focused on the end, the telos. So teleological divine command theory is focused on the end, and we get commands from God, divine command. Okay, so this is this is how law is established. Now, the danger that people, when they hear this, they go, does this mean the church is going to govern the state? No. There's a reformed biblical position that the church and the state are separate institutions. Both of them report to God directly. Right? Here's, the, here's, the, here's the command structure. The individual reports to God. The household reports to God. The church reports to God. The state reports to God. Four direct reports. Each of them have commandments directly from God that they are to obey. They have authority directly from God over specific spheres. Now, an individual can be a member of a household and a member of a church with their household. And, you know, you could have the member of the church also then be an officer in the state. Is that shocking or horrifying or evil? Would you prefer that none of your magistrates be members of churches? So the overlap of membership is not the same thing as the mixing of the institutions. So when people say theocracy means we're going to have an ayatollah, right? they think that there's a prophet, king, okay, a, a, a priest king, a, a, a king who has a church office, that's not the point. The point is not that the person by nature, but by the virtue of their church office, is also a ruler in the state. That is not the point. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the law of God teaches. So this is not the rule of the church over the state. They are separate institutions, both equally granted authority directly by God. This is also not the church being controlled by the state or owned by the state. So some people worry that if there's a recognition of the law of God by the state, that that means that the church will be a wholly owned subsidiary of the state and it will have the Queen of England telling us who the archbishop is. That is an error. That is wrong. That is a, an error called Caesaropapism, that Caesar is pope. Well, I don't believe in a pope. Do you believe in a pope? Do you think the Bible teaches the doctrine of the papacy? And so why should the king be the pope? And so those are two errors joined together, right? Double the error, double the fun. And that's what we get with Caesaropapism. When you try to make 
the church under the state and make it so it's a department of the state. That is not what I'm saying. The law of God establishes two separate institutions, both of which should be reformed under the word of God. So, when we go forward here, what I want to do, we talked about the avenging activity of the state. What I want to spend some time on today is war and watchman type activities. And those activities are essentially the same function. They're like a war type activity. You're resisting ongoing evil. And so we might think of watchman activities as policing powers. I'm careful about the word police powers because police powers is often interpreted as the ability to regulate you when you're not doing a crime. And that's not what the Bible authorizes the state to do. So the Bible authorizes the state to resist, to fight ongoing criminal activity. People running around in the streets shooting, the guy with the badge ought to use his gun. So just war, watchmen, and one of the implications of just war is resistance against tyranny. Okay, so page three. War, watchmen, and resistance to tyranny are all rooted in the principle of interposition. So what's interposition? Interposition is the doctrine that those who are in authority are obligated and therefore authorized to put themselves between danger and the ones that they govern in order to protect the ones that they govern. It's also the doctrine that the authority is authorized to defend himself and the ones he is in authority over in order to hold back, slow down, or stop the danger. Now, this is taught very clearly in Ezekiel 22. In Ezekiel 22, the context is the king is not administering justice and other people won't administer justice. And so God is going to bring destruction on Jerusalem because the king and lesser authorities wouldn't stop the injustice, which implies an obligation and therefore authorization of the lesser authorities to resist the injustice. So let's read that text. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it but I found none that's the basis of the curse that follows so Jerusalem is cursed because the king failed to do his duty to administer justice and no one else was willing to take a stand for justice and stand in the gap resistance to tyrants is obedience to God it is the duty of individuals to stand in the gap if your city is under attack and the wall is breached and you have not been deputized as militia or deputy, right? you're still obligated to stand in the gap and call for help. That's the idea. Standing in the breach is about when there's a disaster, the obligation of the individual to step in to prevent destruction. Now, we see this going to the individual, but also, even though the Bible establishes a very specific form of government, the Bible acknowledges that not having the ideal form of government does not totally delegitimize a government. You can have the wrong form and still have a government that ought to be obeyed if it is exercising justice, if it's administering justice. So, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17, proves that. And so, 
It says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And that's a terrible translation. The word ordinance there. It sounds like any law that man has. The word ordinance there could be translated as creation. Okay, like a creation of man. And you go, what's that? Well, it's a word that used to be used very frequently in terms of when someone was given a title. You'd say they were created as a knight or created as a baron or whatever. You have the initiation of a seat or an office. Okay, this was common in English. Um, but so this is the way it's used here also in Greek. But so the context makes it clear by itself. Right? What kind of ordinance? Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. So this is, notice this is an example. In law, one of the principles for reading texts okay, is when you see something given and then you have a list of things, that list of things helps to define the extent of the term. Okay? So, and that's why if you've ever read a contract, it always says, uh, such as, but not limited to, right? That's your lawyer avoiding that effect of law. And so, or, so therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. Okay, so higher authorities and lesser authorities, even if they are ordinances, in other words, specifically creations, offices of man. And so these are man-invented offices. Is it sin to invent civil offices that God did not create? Yes. Is it sin to submit to them in all cases? No. And so lawful governments, in the sense of still being valid, can exist with human-invented offices. And so that form of government, although could be just cause for leaving a church, is not a just cause for resisting a state. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, it's legitimate to use man-invented offices, and it's legitimate to submit to them. Juries are a man-invented office. The law of God establishes elected councils of judges. But juries come to us by British law. And so we have a tradition in America and a constitutionally established right to trial by jury. Juries are one of the ways in which average citizens are able to exercise the role of a lesser magistrate, to resist tyranny interpose. And so our civil polity involves the use of jury trials for criminal cases. Juries are supposed to check tyranny in two ways. A, juries are to serve as testers of the credibility of evidence. They are fact finders. This is all a judge will instruct you in. You sit in a jury, the judge will tell you, you're a fact finder, you judge whether the person broke the law. You're not judging the law. That's a lie. That man's breaking his oath when he says that. He has sworn to uphold the Constitution. Juries were clearly and plainly established, and it is obvious for the very nature of juries and the history of juries that a part of their duty, a jury of peers, is about judging the rightness of the law. 
the idea of peers as a jury is if you were in the same situation, would you think that this act should be judged as unjust? That's the point of peers being on a jury. That is the basis in English law for peers being the jury. Juries are to serve as testers of the credibility of evidence, they're fact finders. That includes they're judging whether or not the actions of the charged person are, are in fact, uh, as they're claiming, and if they're evil or not, and the civil magistrates involved in the case. Did the police behave properly? Did the prosecutor behave properly? Are these things being done properly? That's a fact-finding element. But then the juries are also to serve as judges of the law. They're constitutional judges. And you should judge by the Bible, the National Covenant, then the laws, and then you should look at just precedents and regulatory language as a help to consider the logic of the law. But the laws, the National Covenant, and the Bible are the only ones that have a binding authority, and the laws only if they adhere to the National Covenant, and the National Covenant only if it adheres to the Bible. Let God be true, and every man a liar. So, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate was talked about by Calvin and the Institutes, talked about by John Knox, Theodore Beza. Calvin and Beza famously argued with each other about the extent to which this would go. Does this mean that the individual even could resist tyranny in certain circumstances? Calvin was horrified to admit such a thing. Beza came to the position that it did. Knox came to the position that it did. And this became a matter that had to be dealt with in many circumstances. And the, the, the basic factor comes down to this. Oftentimes, kings would require that your home allow soldiers to live in the home, to be quartered there, which we're protected by in our Constitution. But the quartering of soldiers often resulted in the sexual abuse of women in the home. Was it proper for the husband or the brothers to kill those men when they were committing crimes against those women? By God, if you do not stop somebody with a badge if they are seeking to harm someone under your care, you must seek the mercy of God. It is your duty to protect them against tyrants. So fathers, if there's somebody with a badge who's seeking to harm your wife or children, it's your job to resist to death. Brothers and sons, the same for you. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate was formulated into a doctrinal statements by the pastors at Magdeburg in Germany. They were resisting the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were using princes and city councils to resist the tyranny of the Holy Roman Empire. And they were calling for other Protestants to heed that call because there were lots of Protestants who were resisting and lots of Protestants who were saying we can't resist because of Romans 13. And so this was an argument to make sure they didn't abuse the obligation of submission. So there's plenty of scripture texts that make these things clear. Some obvious ones I've listed for you. Exodus verses 5, chapter 1, verses 15 to 21 is the example of the Hebrew midwives who are commanded by Pharaoh to kill the baby boys that are Hebrew, and they do not obey. They fear God and see the beauty of the children. They do not obey. They also lie in the process, which is not commended in the word of God, but their refusal to obey is commended. They have faith, and they obey the law of God. Daniel 3, you have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they are commanded to bow down before a golden statue. They refuse and are thrown into a fiery furnace. They come out unscathed. 
they are lesser magistrates and they disobey. The midwives, I think you have a hard time saying they're lesser magistrates. They seem to be not in a public office. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more widely known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they disobey. Daniel 6. Daniel refuses to stop praying to God. There's a commandment to not pray to God. Daniel responds by doing his secret prayers on his porch, on his balcony, to be seen by everyone. His ordinary practice was to pray in secret so as to not display his righteousness before men in such a way as to get the praise of men, and he changed his practice to make sure that he would be challenged and so that he would be able to interpose and seek to deal with the removal of this unjust law. He is thrown into a lion's den, left unscathed. After he's taken out, his accusers are thrown into the lion's den. They are very scathed. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 11, Christ is recognized as the rightful king. You have the Magi coming to look for him. They talk to Herod, and they disobey Herod and do not come back to him to tell him where Christ is when he asks them to, to tell him. That's because they received revelation from God that they are not to do so. They obeyed revelation from God rather than the command of a king in whose jurisdiction they were at the time. Acts 5.29, the apostles say we ought to obey God rather than men, talking to the Jewish Sanhedrin. So John Knox in a letter to the nobles of Scotland in 1558, cites 70 passages, more than 70 passages of scripture to support the doctrine. So uh, Matthew Troilella, uh, who wrote the book, Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, uh, he quotes, uh, he, he explains this as saying, essentially Knox's position is when the state commands that which God forbids, or forbids that which God commands, men have a duty to obey God rather than man. And that's exactly right. So, three duties of lesser magistrates that I want to emphasize that are in addition to their general duty as magistrates. One, they should resist laws from a higher authority that oppose the word of God. Two, they should protect the rights of those who reside within their jurisdiction from tyranny. Rights are defined by God's law. Three, they should refuse to implement any laws that violate the law of God. So resist, do not implement, protect. So now, I have other verses here that further reinforce this doctrine, and had I had more time to prepare, I would have organized them more and had more for you, but what I want to do is run, run through them and point out some key things in those texts. Acts 4.19 obviously precedes Acts 5. This is an initial response when the court tells them to stop preaching the gospel. Peter and John, they respond with, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. The court apparently did not get the obviousness of which side to land on. And so in the second confrontation in Acts 29, they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. Sorry for leaving you with a rhetorical thing that you did not figure out. Now, early in the Bible, another example after the Hebrew midwives, we have Rahab. Now, in Jericho, there are Hebrew spies that are trying to flee the policing authority, the, the watchmen of that city who have been declared you know, to be unjust and to be people who should be conquered by the Israelites, they are seeking out these Hebrew spies, and Rahab hides them. She lies in the process. Lying is not commended, but Hebrews 11.31 
commends this. It says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Receiving the spies with peace, seeking their good, that's what's commended, not the lying. And so what we have here is resistance being viewed as a positive thing with the rejection of the unlawful authority. We already had the midwives we talked about. There's that text. Hebrews 11 also gives commentary on that. It says, this is page 5, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. His parents disobeyed Pharaoh and hid the child rather than killing the child or allowing the child to be killed. So they resisted Pharaoh and kept the child alive. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, there's the Daniel text about uh, the resistance there. Paul ran away from the police, right? 2 Corinthians 11, 32-33. It says, In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Right? He's sneaking out to avoid arrest. This was lawful resistance. So when we think about resistance, what are the types of resistance? The types of resistance are... First, we are to speak the truth and to pray against tyranny. That's prophetic resistance and priestly resistance, prayer. Prophecy and prayer. We speak against and we pray against. Then, if you do not have the strength to resist and win, you flee. Jesus says, if they persecute you in one town, flee to another. However, we have the example of Purim, where the Jews were going to be attacked and have their property taken, and they assembled into armed groups and resisted and defeated their enemies. Armed resistance is lawful, and it is an extension of the right of self-defense, and it is an extension of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And so, when we look at just war, we need to remember that just warfare is warfare against criminal actors who are not repenting, not allowing themselves to be captured. And so what we look at is the use of force on the field of battle. And so just warfare, the first example that we are given of it is in Genesis 14, where Abraham leads an army. Genesis 14, bottom of page 5. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Ketelemer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Ketelemer, you've probably heard from me, is Hammurabi. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then... One who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, 
the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Anur. And they were allies with Abraham. Now that word allies, better translated as covenanted, confederates. These are, they're covenanted with Abraham. And so what you have is Lot, who's covenanted with Abraham, is attacked. And so Abraham gets a report of the attack, and he has an obligation to come to the defense of Lot. And those who are in the confederation, who are also members of that covenanted group, are obligated to come to the defense of the covenanted body. Now, Lot, Abraham, and these two other men are essentially minor kings. They have very large estates, many servants, and they have land, and they don't have some other king over them that they are going to for court matters and going to in terms of civil defense. Verse 14, Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. And Nigel, Francis Nigel Lee has an excellent uh, sermon series where he talks about those trained servants and discusses that term, uh, the idea of trained there, being commonly used for the idea of being catechized. So they're not just trained in warfare, but they're adult men, they're covenanted men, they're catechized. And so these 318 catechized servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, being born into his own house, you find later on that citizen soldiers of Israel should be those that are born into the nation. The idea that those who are the citizen soldiery are the ones that should go to war. They ought to be men of good character. They should be part of the covenant. They should be citizens, and typically you don't become a citizen with all the rights and authorities of a citizen uh, until the third generation. But you do have examples of men who covenanted that were not born into a nation that seemed to have been approved. For example, example, Uriah the Hittite worked for David as one of the mighty men. And he is referenced in a positive light in scripture. And so there seems to be, even though there's not an ability to enter civil office as a judge or to be able to be a voting member, you can enter into military service if you've converted and covenanted and joined the nation not by birth. But the general norm should be that the people born into a nation are the ones who take responsibility to defend the nation, a citizen, soldier, army. So these servants go with Abraham. They went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now, they track down the army. They do a forced march to catch up to them. They move around to have a double location for attack so that there's a flanking maneuver, and they do it as a surprise attack at night. Highly effective, quick moving, and they follow with pursuit. Abraham was a skilled tactician. In this, they save the people that were taken, they defeat the enemy army, and they take all the goods. Now this is followed with the fact that Abraham gives back the goods to the people they were originally stolen from. And some of the things he has a right to as spoils of war, he does not take because he does not want anybody to claim that he became rich by anybody other than God. And so the people who came with him, however, he acknowledges their right to the spoils of war and says that they should be given their portion, his confederates. And so we have lawful examples of warfare 
and things that could be done there. So this is the story form. It's way more interesting, and you're willing to listen to me when I read it. And so I've given you the limits of the state in a more orderly and philosophical listing uh, immediately following that, which I think you would not follow me as closely with if I were to read right now, and there are limits of time. So I encourage you to read that on your own. But the limits of the state I have sought to lay out there. If you think there's a power that I have not acknowledged of the state in this, please let me know. I'd be very grateful to be able to update my list. You can help to show it from Scripture. So we've thought about the idea of the watchman obligation. We've thought about just warfare and resistance to tyranny as an extension of the just warfare doctrine. I encourage you, if you are interested in understanding further, there are two excellent books on the subject that are very, very short. Let me show you how short they are. They're hidden here underneath my paper. These are small booklets. This one is by Philip Kaiser, The Divine Right of Resistance Against Tyranny. It is an excellent read. And The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates by Matthew Twohella. Generally speaking, Pastor Kaiser has better doctrine than Pastor Twohella. Pastor Kaiser is a Presbyterian, and Pastor Twohella is a Methodist, I believe. And um, the doctrine that, Mr. that Pastor Kaiser teaches um, is excellent in general here. He has some things in the book that seem to suggest that the right of resistance does not go down to the individual. So that's my note that you see at the bottom there. Um, and that's the only significant concern I would have about the book. So I think that that might be a misreading, but I think that's, um, I think that's what he's saying. So comments, questions, objections from voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney. So something I've wondered is, let's say it's uh, 
the English Civil War and then the 1689 Bill of Rights and Queen Anne and her weak rule and the things that followed after that, right? You have, you have a series of events where authority accumulates into Parliament and the kings become more and more irrelevant. And George III seeks to reassert monarchical power before going mad, which did not help his cause. The events that occur there, the Declaration of Independence only addresses the king because it is meant to be an insult to Parliament that they have nothing to declare to Parliament because Parliament has no authority over the colonies. So the idea is that the king has totally failed to protect them from Parliament's usurpations. And that's the same as a foreign government ruling in the land and the king not acknowledging it, not coming to the defense. That's the basic argument, is the legislative argument. There are a list in the Declaration of Independence of abuses by the king, because the idea is that those abuses by the king are the actions of the king himself, and the failures of the king to act against parliament are not listed. Uh, but like the Stamp Act is resisted not principally because of the fact that it's a tax is too high. The Stamp Act is resisted because it's imposed by parliament, and not by the colonial legislature. So that is why I believe uh, the War of Independence is clearly justified. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have established the civil magistrate to protect us from evil. We ask that you would give to us godly magistrates. We ask now as we enter into election season that you would help us to find godly magistrates that fear you, that hate covetousness, that seek truth, that are uh, lovers of truth and that you would cause competent men who fit that definition to fill offices over us. We ask that you would, you would spare us from tyranny, that you would cause unjust laws to be removed, you would cause wicked magistrates to be removed or converted. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand the state properly, and that you would help us to see what we have a duty to obey and what we do not have a duty to obey. I ask that you would give us strength to act in faith in these matters, to know where we can be slapped in the cheek, where we can be forced to march a mile and go to. I ask that you would give us strength to know the extent that we ought to give for the sake of peace and to also know where we ought not to bend. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Amen.